You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know, this is what Cicero is afraid of uh, quite often. There's this great line, I use it as a chapter, title of my chapters, from one of his mentors talking about how he feels when he's about to get up and address the row in public. And this is, you, you have to picture this guy as the most experienced, most successful orator of his time. He's real, he's, you know, he's seen everything and done everything. And he says, when I get up to speak, I still mm-hmm. tremble uh, with my whole heart and in every limb. He describes himself kind of shaking. And it's not, that's not just stage fright. It's the idea that you are exposing yourself to shame every time you get up. Hi, and we're talking with Rob Goodman, the author of Words on Fire, Eloquence, and Its Conditions. Rob Goodman is an assistant professor of politics and public administration at Ryerson University and a former U.S. House and Senate speechwriter. We talk so much on this program about speech, especially lately. Didn't talk about it much when I started the podcast. Just talked about it a little. Now it's become problematic. Uh, So it may be interesting to know that it was also problematic for the ancients and the American framers of the Constitution and people alive around that time as well, that it's that our problems are similar. And they had some struggles as well figuring out what to do with people speaking and maybe as a result of that acquiring political power. And should there be rules around that? And that's why I found um, this book, words on fire. We're happy to have him on the program. Rob, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. The subject is eloquence in a sense, and maybe it's best that we define it, or at least what, what say, Cicero was was trying to get at with the with a term like eloquence. Yeah, for sure. Um, and as you mentioned, um, Cicero is a big focus of the book. Uh, we could talk a little bit about why I thought he's the person you really need to focus on if, if you want to think about speech. Um, so he's he's really the person through whose eyes I look at a lot of these questions. But I, you know, I start out in the very beginning of the book, and I say, well, I, I don't want to define eloquence in a really kind of you know robust or complicated way because everyone's going to have different sorts of tastes and everyone's mm-hmm. going to have different kind of opinions on who's their their model speaker and so on. So I say one way of thinking about eloquence is just skilled speech. It's being good at the art of speaking. But of course, that's vague and that's kind of vague on purpose. But what really interested me is when I started looking at what did someone like a Cicero mean by skilled speech, by speech being skilled? They were interested not just in what made you a, a, a good orator, someone who is capable of, of addressing the public in a skilled and impressive way, but also about the kinds of relationships that exist between the person speaking and the people listening. And that was, I think, what, one of the biggest things that I found when I looked at Cicero is that, that eloquence isn't really a thing that's in a particular person. It's in a particular relationship. It's in a it's in a situation. It grows out of how the speaker and the audience interact. So so what I think is we want my try to make the definition like a little more robust and add some kind of put some meat on the bones, as it were. I think about a couple of things. One, there's this element of spontaneity or riskiness that that comes up a lot, uh, especially in the ancients. This idea that to be eloquent, you have to you know you, you have to be uh, surprising. You have to take risks. You have to compromise your standing. You have to risk the potential of falling on your face, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And that's part of it. But there's also the idea that 
eloquence isn't just ordinary speech. It's not just the everyday. It's not just the um, kind of speech you hear, say, in, in the marketplace or, or the home. It, it's special. Um, it's self-consciously not everyday. Uh, one of the words that, that gets used by the ancient writers, especially in Latin for this idea, is the idea of decorum. Uh, the, the idea of decorum as um, fitting the words to a particular situation, stylizing your speech so that it fits what's going on at that rhetorical moment for the, the crowd you're addressing. So I put these two together, um, and I think that if, if you combine this element of, of riskiness and this element of, of stylization or uh, extraordinary quality, um, you get what I call in the book spontaneous decorum, which is a bit of a, a bit of a paradox, but that's what makes it difficult, is being able to spontaneously produce speech that is um, – shaped to the moment and stylized and out of the ordinary, but doing it with a degree uh, of risk. And, and because it combines those two difficult elements that could be a little bit contradictory, that this is why eloquence is is difficult, but it's also why, you know, for people like Cicero, the ability to rise to the moment and deliver something like that is valued so highly. Let's talk about that risk, because I think it becomes, it's very important uh, to your point about the times today where risk may be a problem, there may be a lack of risk. But let's define that as well. When we say the speaker is experiencing risk, like a senator, the Roman senator, or senator in the American Senate is getting up and making a speech, what's their risk? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, with risk of losing face, with with face, with with risk of, of social standing. When, when I read um, the way that these encounters between, and we're, we're talking about elite people, we're, we're talking about a practice that um, only a very few people engaged in. But when, when these kind of elite people go to these confrontational situations and they try to win an audience over in public, whether, whether, it's, whether it's the audience in the Senate or, or it's a trial or it's a public assembly or whatever it is, there's the possibility that if they do something wrong, if they if they embarrass themselves, if they make an argument that doesn't connect. If they uh, misspeak, if, if they speak wrongly, if they, if they get made a mockery of by their opponent somehow, they face this tremendous possibility uh, of failing consequentially in public. Now, obviously, uh, at the end of the day, they're still kind of – they're the elite of society. They're not going to get thrown out on the street because it goes badly. But I think at the upper reaches of politics, you know, then and now, uh, to lose face in public is a big deal. Uh, people spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, you know, so so for Cicero, um, he tells a lot of stories about people who, who you know, for instance, um, uh, have have their their careers, reputations punctured by um, uh, misspeaking, uh, by screwing up, or by someone having telling someone uh, telling a cutting joke about you that makes you look bad in public. And I think that there there's something interesting in that. Um, it's that these incidents aren't. Um, things that he's trying to, to get out of the system. He doesn't want speech to be more predictable or, or calmer or more sedate. He thinks that, you know, the possibility of this happening is kind of what adds that, uh, the sizzle. Um, it's what adds the possibility of something interesting happening the moment someone gets up to speak, because you don't know what's going to happen. It could go very right or it could go very wrong. And, and the possibility of it going right kind of hinges on that possibility of it going very wrong. When you think about today and on and, and history and what happened with political conventions in America to where they were this uh, event of spontaneity that you could go and see a president, a potential president crowned in some um, moment of mass hysteria. You could see amazing events happen, but then they became television orchestrated events. And that's a major complaint that people have. I don't even want to watch it do that now. Risk is so important in your analysis and it, and it really strikes me as well 
if we talk about a, a speaker who doesn't have risk, we start talking about, say, people who are using speech that's already terms that they know the audience is going to like, and now added that with all social media going on, that it's kind of like, I, I'm only communicating with people really who are on my um, Snapchat or on my channel that I want to communicate with. So there's very little risk of me falling on my face. And of course, you know, as I say this, people are going to be thinking about Trump, and that's one way to go. And I, and I think in your book, you know, you obviously do go and explore that because that's been the phenomenon of the last few years. But interestingly enough, considering that and where that conversation usually goes, you also bring up uh, the Obama campaign in 2008 and their use of, say, focus groups, intense amounts of focus groups for understanding words and also um, their use of data mining and understanding what people might already want to hear and then giving it to them as things that are dangerous as well. So a lot there, but start anywhere you want. And <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of places to jump in. Um, but I, I'd say that, that in general, my, my analysis of what's wrong with rhetoric right now does come down to that idea of too much predictability and too little risk. And that, that comes from my, my career as a speechwriter, from what I saw trying to, to write these things. Uh, and, and also, you know, as a political observer um, and also as a political theorist <clears throat> who tries to put this into context historically. So I think that the big trend that I see in the development of political rhetoric over the last, uh, well, I, I don't know how long you want to date it back, um, but certainly over the last generation mm. or, or several presidential cycles in the U.S., is towards using every possible technological tool to make speech as certain as possible, as certain as much of certainty as possible for the politician. And I talk about Obama's practices doing this in, in the book, but I'll also point out that this is just, you know, to my knowledge, it's universal. This is what mm. campaigns, successful campaigns, do. They do whatever they can to make sure they understand what words, what, what effect their words are going to have, because before their words are spoken. So that could be something as simple as focus grouping or polling, or it could be more complicated things like uh, tracking users' social media profiles, like tracking their magazine subscriptions or purchases. Um, like even more recently in the 2020 election, um, uh, the Trump campaign um, used uh, geotargeting. I think the Biden campaign did as well to you know to physically track the location of people with their campaign apps on their phone to understand things about what where they went, what environments they were in, what neighborhoods they were in, if they. Um, if they went to church, if they went to Walmart, if they went to the mall, all sorts of things that can help politicians to know the audience with a degree of precision that really hasn't existed before. Now, you know, historically, orators going all the way back to the beginning always want to know the audience, that that's kind of the, the first commandment of being good speakers. You have to know who you're talking to and know what they want to hear. But here's the difference, I think. The difference is before it became easier to kind of know the audience from a position of concealment, the only way to know the audience was essentially trying something and seeing if it worked or not. There's that element of risk. You knew the audience by showing something of yourself um, and watching its effects. Uh, in contrast, I think what more recent technological developments in political rhetoric allow politicians to do is to sort of know the audience and, and know what's expected without compromising their own standing. It's sort of you know sending up a periscope, as it were, to figure out about the audience from a position of concealment uh, without any kind of risk to your standing or your or your face. So why, why is that a problem? I think it's a problem for a couple of reasons. 
One, rhetoric is an activity in a democracy. It's a really unequal activity. It's an activity in which only a very small handful of people ever get to speak and ever get to have that uh, attention and prestige that go with it. But one of the ways in which it becomes a little more equal is this idea that an orator will willingly expose themselves to the consequences of getting it wrong. This is the thing that makes the search for eloquence, the pursuit of eloquence, push in the direction of equality, be something that can support democracy rather than undermine it. On the other hand, if you lose that, if, if the idea simply is figuring out which buttons to press in an audience you kind of think of as an inanimate object, you lose that democracy promoting, that, that equality promoting function. So, you know, what I'm concerned with here is not so much that all these techniques work. You know, we heard a lot about Cambridge Analytica and all the kind of fancy mm -hmm. social media data mining and profile mining to figure out the psychographic profiles that come up with some kind of mumbo jumbo word for it uh, of voters to, to specially target messages. It's not that all this stuff works. I think the, the jury is very much out on whether these buttons can be pressed as well as people think they can be. The point that interests me is that politicians uh, desperately want to be able to push these buttons. And they, they very much think of the way in which they interact with the public as a sort of instrumentalizing the public, treating the public as an object and not as a potential partner in this activity we do together. So this leads to the other question I think you brought up, is what's that to do with Trump? Because Trump seems to contradict a lot of this stuff. Right. Yeah, people would say, I could hear a member of my audience saying, ah, that's why I went for Trump. Oh, totally. He's, and, he's yeah. uh, says what's on his mind. Guy, guy tells you what he says. So does I'm just going to tell you how it is. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's very much a part of the appeal. And I, th I think that a lot of this kind of goes under the the uh, anti PC or anti uh, cancel culture uh, heading. But I think that the bigger pill, the bigger picture, and, and I think the bigger kind of rhetorical appeal of this guy is uh, he didn't and he doesn't sound like most politicians. I, I saw there was a great block quote I used from a speech of his, um, I think that an author, uh, Lane, Lane Green, put in his book. It's just this sort of rambly thing about how smart he is and, and how he went to college at MIT and has great genes and blah, blah, blah. Or he didn't go to MIT, but one of his relatives did or something. That's right. His uncle or yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, smart guy, great guy, totally great. Uh, you know, went to the, did this, did that, uh, built a fortune. Uh, you know, people don't give me credit for it because you, you could, you could, everyone could imitate this by now, right? And, and I think that the thing is, no one, for the most part, had heard a politician speak like that before. So I think there's very much a need being met for this degree of riskiness, this degree of spontaneity that I think made him a compelling figure, even to people who didn't like him. I think a lot of that is simply because he'll say things that are, are hurtful to people in his audience. And I think people enjoy that. There's the cruelty of it. But I think there's also the, the riskiness and the spontaneity of it. And I think that's very much he's meeting a need. And part of the point I try to make in the book is... If, you know, non-populist or establishment, quote unquote, or, or more centrist figures are concerned about this phenomenon and they want to do something about it, they ought to think about the way in which they speak and the way in which they're perceived. That you can't, you can't counter this sounding like, uh, you know, um, Al Gore, for instance. Yeah. That, that's one side of it. I think the complicating factor here is that in many ways, Trump is a little bit more, uh, less spontaneous than he seems. And that's simply because one, uh, you know, he speaks to groups of people that are primed to agree with him. He, he you know, he, he knows who's going to be at the rallies. We've adjusted the audience instead of adjusting the rhetoric. For sure. And two, you know, this is something that Cicero talks about quite a bit, is rhetoric is about training the character, not just the ability to speak. So part of the, the kind of constitutive, constitutive things that go into making an orator is having this sense uh, of shame so that when you do lose face because you screw up, then you pay the cost for it. So it's interesting that Trump and being kind of this famously shameless figure who simply cannot be embarrassed or it looks you know seems like he can't be 
in many ways, that means that the risk isn't there in the same way because it, it's as if he doesn't perceive risk the way that, that you or I do the risks to his speech. It's almost as if someone without nerves in their hand is putting their hand on a hot stove. You kind of miss the point of the pain signal that hot stove is giving to you. So I, I think my, my, my take on this in general is that is that on the one hand, his ability to speak in the way that he does or, or inability or whatever you want to call it is meeting a need that is not met by a lot of people in our political system. But I also think that there's a lot less there there than would seem at first glance. And the reason I think he stands out is because rhetoric in our system right now is so impoverished to begin with, that the people are just sort of thirsty for anything that looks like it could be risky. That's a great point. I certainly share the view that on the great swath of politics, there's a lesson there that you need to be more spontaneous, essentially, and real spontaneous. And I think about the 1960 television debates, and that was a real effort. While I'm sure there also was some management, and Kennedy was a cool cucumber who knew good phrases and things, that was an attempt to just say, put these guys on TV, see what they say. Kennedy needed to do it, and Richard Nixon couldn't say no to save face, actually. So it had yeah, to yeah. happen. And yeah. then actually, once it happened, it, it there was an attempt to bury it. And yeah. Lyndon Johnson wanted no interest in uh, debating Goldwater in some live scenario. And uh, unless you had a situation where an incumbent president was down in the polls, which happened with Ford, it might have never reappeared. So it was an attempt to have these spontaneous things, but it quickly got, maybe even by the 88 elections, very uh, contrived to the point that they were trying to outdo each other. Oh, you're the Joe Isuzu of politics. And and, and th with these phrases to try to get on the news rather than really just politicians should think about ditching some of the very common um, spinning type talk that that really took off in the in the 80s where we're not talking real words we're saying like magic words but also i think this critical thing about the audience changing and obviously social media allowing you to really pick an audience so there's never quite a risk well i share your view that um it's probably not perfect, any of these contrivances that politicians do. But I do think when you – that's why I think it's great about your book, focusing on that risk. Because I think reducing the risk sounds like it is something that's very doable for most politicians. Like getting it to, oh, from a 30% um, chance that I could fall on my face here to just a 5% because this audience is mostly Democrats – they're going to like this message, even if I know in my head there's a counterpoint. I'm not going to share that in this particular instant. I think it. I think all of that is quite interesting. We could talk a bit about Cicero because he is the um, example for for everyone. I mean, they, they, when they wanted to say Lincoln was great or Daniel Webster was great, they called them a Cicero. Um, he was very much, as I reading your book, he was very much in the school of. Hey, if you want to learn about an audience, get out and speak in front of them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I think it was very much a kind of learning by doing approach, um, especially because, you know, in the context that he's he's writing in, um, there's this sort of kind of weird Roman macho culture where you wouldn't want to act like you, you, you studied too much, which especially meant kind of in their context meant you were, you were being Greek and you wouldn't want to do that. You'd have to kind of, even if you did, you'd kind of keep it on the down low and just tell your few friends because you didn't want to get looked like you were a nerd. But, but there are a lot of reasons why I focus on Cicero in the, in this book. Um, one is just because 
he's such an influential figure historically. Obviously, for uh, the early generations in America, you have people who think about founding a modern republic from the perspective of their classical educations. You know, this is something that you um, learn about as a as a condition of being a student in schools. So you you need to learn your Cicero, your, your your Latin, your Roman history. So it has a direct influence uh, in that way. Uh, obviously, that's not the only period in which Cicero is a hugely influential figure. That there there are plenty of times when people want to think about what it means to have a republic. That the example, uh, the tragic example of the Roman Republic and its fall uh, crop up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the other reason, I think, is something like a, a, a kind of conversion evolution. Um, this idea that even if you kind of take away the idea of, of direct influence, um, the Roman Republic and the American Republic are, are similar in enough interesting ways that you can learn from one or the other. And that doesn't mean that, that America is, is a carbon copy of Rome or is going to have the same problems or is doomed to the same kind of fate. Uh, you know, I'm not that kind of historical determinist, but I think that there's a reason people keep coming back to this analogy. And it's not just kind of inertia because they don't have any other analogies to think of. I, I think it's because there are the, a lot of similarities. There, there's the idea of a, a republic also being an empire, uh, the idea of how do you, how you reconcile uh, imperialism uh, abroad with uh, republicanism at home. Uh, there's the idea of inequality and, and oligarchy. Um, in Roman times, especially in the last couple of generations of the Republic, um, the dominant arguments were about things um, uh, like um, uh, inequality, access to land, access to uh, political power, access to voting power, access to voting rights. Uh, these are very much arguments that we are still having about whether or not Republican forms of self-government can coexist uh, with inequality. Um, even on a level of, of diversity, I, I just read recently in this really interesting web series by a guy named uh, Brett Devereaux, who's a classics professor uh, in, in North Carolina, I think. And yeah, a great series talking about mm-hmm. diversity in, in the Roman Republic, talking about how uh, this is a place that pulled people from all different kinds uh, of language families, of religious groupings, of ethnicities uh, in in ancient Italy, and then from all over the Mediterranean world, you know, a guy like Cicero uh, wasn't born in Rome. Um, he was he was you know in an earlier generation he wouldn't have been considered a Roman, um, and yet this was a society that was good at taking people kind of from the outskirts and the hinterlands, people from different backgrounds, um, and making them Roman and assimilating them, allowing them to kind of claim that Roman identity. And the person who kind of goes down in history. Um, as sort of the most Roman Roman, uh, Cicero, the guy who was um, described as sort of the, the uh, ornament of the empire, uh, the ornamental man of Rome, um, was in one sense not even Roman at all. Uh, and I think all these these uh, intersections of, of things that make Roman politics so complicated, uh, inequality, um, uh, diversity, uh, imperialism, um, struggles over the future of a republic, uh, military rule, and so on, um, these are perennial issues. And I think people have always looked to the Roman context to figure out issues in their republic. And that's what I do here, focusing on the issue of speech, focusing on the issue of um, what kinds of speech um, help a republic endure uh, and what kinds of speech uh, threaten a republic over the long run. And then that's exactly the same thing Cicero is interested in. Yeah, I find it interesting. It seems like that fear is that rhetoric becomes this little magic box once you've discovered the right words to say and the right audience and you can control those things then in then you can have all the power you desire yeah yeah especially the in, in systems of government that are based 
on uh, on speaking in public, that in which speech in public plays such a big role. There's the worry that this becomes a power that people can uh, abuse or monopolize to dominate others. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so it's not just like eloquence as, oh, uh, it's, it's nice to make good speeches. It's, it's better to make speeches that are grounded in fact or the like. It's, it's actually a danger if speech is allowed in a certain way. But it's, it's, it, it's a live problem. And I get the sense that it's a, it was a live problem for Cicero. It's not something that he was solving in his time. It's something that was happening right before him. And just like it's happening right before us that um, we must have speech in a democracy. We value free speech, but it can also be very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that this is one of the big lessons I try to draw in the book um, is that you can say a lot about what kind of political society you have, what kind of republic or otherwise you live in um, by speech norms, by the kind of speech Mm -hmm. that people tend to do in public by the way that politicians speak to their audiences, by the way citizens speak to each other. Uh, speech norms are, are the very stuff of politics, uh, and, and people ought to pay attention to them because they really tell a story that sometimes isn't told explicitly. Uh, and that, that's you know what I'm worried about in contemporary politics uh, is this idea of contemporary political inequality. And I think you see this in speech norms that, that as I describe them in the, in, in the book, are risk-averse speech norms, speech norms in which um, politicians generally want to do anything they can to avoid risking their standing when they speak to the audience. It's the idea of, of an audience that pushes politicians, that demands politicians do that, to risk themselves, to, risk themselves, to have the ability to, to push your political elites to do that, that makes your society a little bit more equal. So a society in which um, you start thinking about speech as a means of dominating or, communi- or, or manipulating or advertising rather than as a means of hashing out relationships between the people who get to be the elite and the rest of us and, and trying to make those relationships a little more equal. A relationship in which speech does the, does the former thing and becomes this means of domination um, is not a good recipe for a democracy in the long run. Um, and I think you can, you can learn a lot about uh, the stake that political elites really put in these democratic ideals by whether or not they practice them in the way they address the public. You know, this, this is why I think eloquence isn't just something that's nice to have. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just something that happens on a superficial level of kind of uh, pretty words and great speeches of history and having you know, clips on, on TV and then nice sound bites and so on. It's more about how you organize your politics in the bigger picture. It's about whether the kind of speech norms you have uh, in a democracy help that democracy live up to its promise 
or uh, undermine that democracy's commitments. We hear uh, so much these days about cancel culture. We hear about speakers um, being maybe shunned. There's actually bannings that occurred. I mean, President Trump remains uh, banned from from Twitter after um, comments that were seen to spread violence in, in after January 6th events. And but it's you know it, these these things aren't totally resolved. They remain problems. We kind of have this society where, on one hand, where there's concerns over canceling speakers. Some of it, I think, sometimes overhyped. You have people who are claiming they're canceled and they're making millions of dollars speaking in whatever venues they find, or they're speaking at colleges that I could never dream of speaking at, or even a lot of professors who who should be speaking, could never dream of speaking at, and and they're still saying canceled. And on the other hand, we, um, so there's this concern about limiting speech, but in some ways there are more fringe speakers with audiences than you might have had. In the, in the 1980s, they might have been limited to a little zine or a very small meeting in a, in a gray-carpeted room. There seems to be, let, let me put it this way, there seems to be a lot of concern with not so much my own speech. I feel free to speak, but we're worried about each other's speech. Yeah, and I think yeah, this is it's a really complicated thing, and I think it really speaks to a lot of the issues I'm concerned with, with, with issues of, of risk, uh, as I mentioned, the risk of dramatically losing face in public. Um, you know, um, when I write about uh, history of eloquence in my book, and I, I look at places like, I, I look at 18th century Britain, for instance, um, I look at uh, ancient Rome in another chapter, um, these are not places with our same ideas of freedom of speech, and yet they're places in which similar ideas surface, uh, the idea of, of facing significant uh, social consequences or sanction uh, for saying the wrong thing. Uh, you know, this is what Cicero is, is afraid of uh, quite often. There's this great line, I, I use it as a chapter, title of my chapters, um, from one of his mentors talking about how he feels when he's about to get up and address the row in public. And this is, you, you have to picture this guy as the most experienced, most successful orator of his time. He's real. He's, you know, he's seen everything and done everything. And he says, when I get up to speak, I still mm-hmm. tremble uh, with my whole heart and in every limb. He describes himself kind of shaking. And it's not, that's not just stage fright. It's the idea that you are exposing yourself uh, to shame every time you get up. And it's the sense of decorum, the sense of what the moment uh, demands from you that helps you navigate the sense of shame. But your sense of shame is really very much a part of what makes you a good and compelling speaker. So the, the twist on this that I get, and I think the way that, that people in these sort of pre-liberal societies without our kind of same understanding of freedom of speech help us think about this question is that a lot of times I think the, the analogy that we work on when we think about what's ro- you know, wrong with cancel culture is sort of the analogy of, of chilling speech is this idea is, you know, it's, it's sort of the idea of censorship or it's an Orwellian idea that if you're going to face negative consequences for what you say, um, then you're not going to say it in the first place. And over time, the public sphere's, sphere is going to become uh, tamer, um, less interesting, um, more predictable, and so on. And I think that's very much a, a very much a danger. And I, I think that kind of goes along with what I say about risk aversion. But the other side of this that I don't think gets talked about as much is that one thing I learned from Cicero is the idea that the possibility of having this happen to you is also the condition of speech being extraordinary and interesting it's it's the danger the orator gets on you know it takes on whenever he or she gets up to speak um 
it's that danger in trying to overcome a crowd that is very much in an antagonistic relationship with you, uh, very uh, much on the defensive against what you were trying to sell or trying to say to them, um, may, may be inclined to heckle you or boo you, and, and trying to say something that can tame a group of people like that or can win a group of people like that over is where the truly extraordinary speech comes from. So it might be not that the possibility of losing face chill speech, I'm sure it does for some people, but I think for other people and in other circumstances, the possibility that everything you say could be the last thing you say is something that imparts a, a real uh, drama uh, and importance a, a, and heightened quality to what happens in the public sphere. So I think it pushes in both directions. And I, I think the difficult thing that, that we have to think about is how do you get people to take on those risks knowing it can go badly? Uh, what are the kind of social, institutional, political pressures mm-hmm. that could be brought to bear? And that, that's not really a question I solve in the book, but I think about it I, I think about it a lot because even Cicero, who talked about all these things and celebrated them, was in practice, you know, often a risk-averse kind of guy. You know, he, he was a politician. He didn't want to fall on his face. He just kind of talked about uh, the possibility of it happening as something that would be a one of the conditions of great rhetoric. So I, I guess I just one thing that I get from this is that the relationship between, you know, call it call it cancellation, call it losing face, call it um, uh, risk, call it uh, the possibility of being heckled. The relationship between these bad things um, and speech that could be truly extraordinary. Mm-hmm is it's a two-way street uh, and it's complex and i think it's complex in a way that a lot of the sort of you know social media discourse about it doesn't always land on um and if i can bring a little bit more complexity to that a little more nuance that would help yeah by the way we uh we are speaking with rob goodman the author of words on fire i think you should get the book a lot of times people that might be listening will think oh well you know we talked about everything i can assure you that (laughs) it's developed in the course of reading a book like this points are developed is more examples there's there's um it's really the uh the toolbox that you need to understand this you're not going to understand it from my totally from my 45 minute podcast here but hopefully we've awakened you a bit I guess it goes to we talked a little, we hinted at it a little bit of kind of what's the solution for some of these things. I noted that in your book you mentioned our our friend James Madison, who in Federalist Fifty Eight noted that with a larger body, I think it's speaking about legislatures, but in larger bodies, there's less chance of demagoguery. Um, so if you, I guess, you know, one of the things is a federal Congress versus a a state or a small locality, you know, you might have less chance of demagoguery with a larger audience. So one proposed solution is that the larger the, the, the audience, the, there's a kind of purification that might occur. That at least was Madison. And I may even have interpreted him wrong, but are there any other like solutions that you, that you see? Well, I, I think the solution, you know, I, I always feel like it's a bit of a cop-out to say the solution is kind of a cultural solution. Uh, but to some extent it is. I mean, this is, you know, I, I guess when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, I guess is the saying. And I'm, I'm a political theorist and I study these concepts. But I think that the part of the problem is not just the technological development that makes it possible for politicians to, to um, um, message test with a degree of, of accuracy that, that hasn't been possible in the past. I think it's the, the, the loss of the concept of the orator uh, as a really uh, important and, and um, interesting and, and prestigious and difficult and dangerous social role. The, the idea that, that oratory and being an orator 
is something that that you could aspire to do is something that you could be um and I think there are a lot of reasons why this becomes a, a role that's in decline. I talk about them in the book. I think there are institutional changes, the kind that, that, that Madison talks about, that in a lot of ways you could think about the U.S. Constitution and other kind of 18th century political thought as a way of lowering the temperature on speech, of making speech um, a little less risky, a little more straightforward and calm. And I, I think that this didn't always have good consequences, as I talk about in the book. But I also think um, – there are uh, cultural consequences. There's people um, not really being educated in rhetoric. Uh, there's just the idea that, uh, you know, I think as someone else said, um, speech is a lot cheaper now uh, than it used to be. Um, you're not going to, you know, travel for uh, 25 miles to, to see a Lincoln-Douglas debate. You can see anyone talking about any subject any time you want um, on TikTok uh, for free. Um, so I think what, what comes out of this is the idea that the orator as a as a person who fills a role that involves both prestige uh and and risk um falls away and, and i think that gap gets filled both by things like you know trump which i think is kind of a cheap simulacrum of, of what we're looking for and also just by things like uh advertising um and i don't have like a, a perfect one-to-one solution for this in the book but i do think that audiences, that the democratic publics need to figure out how to demand more of their politicians and how to demand more of their speakers, um, how to demand that they rise to the challenge and fill that role in a very different circumstance. And the only thing I say that, that's a little more concrete than that in the, in the end of the book is I feel like there's a tendency in in the way that speech gets talked about and reported uh, to blame to blame the public, uh, to say that it's our fault, that, that we're polarized, that we're tribal, that we're bad listeners. Um yeah, and I talk about that quite a bit in the book, and I just think that that's really um, that's really misplacing where the blame is. In a deeply unequal system, you you, you look to assign responsibility where where the power is assigned, um, and, and I think it's not so much that people are bad listeners as there's not just there, there there's not very much that is worth listening to, and I think that's a different problem, uh, and it's not one that I can kind of uh, snap my fingers and solve, but I think I can at least try to point out what kind of shape the problem has. So that people think and think of it in a different way. I mean, that, that's what I try to do as a political theorist. And I know that that's not always um, it doesn't always satisfy me because I wish I had a better answer sometimes. But mm -hmm. I at least you know think that one thing I can offer is thinking about the problem in a new way. Yeah, acknowledging it is understanding it's half the bottle, half the bottle. Um, yeah, G.I. Joe, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a millennial, too, so I, I remember that in the, in the 80s. I, I grew up with that on uh, Saturday a, mornings for sure. I, I fall into the Gen X category uh, as these things go, but I still watch the uh, <laughs> watch the, yeah. the cartoon. I mean, I think we covered I think we covered a great deal of this of, of Words on Fire. But if, if is there anything that we missed that we, we probably should have? Plenty there. I, I I could talk about this stuff all day, but I think we uh, we hit some of the highlights. There's a whole chapter on Edmund Burke that you gotta read the book to, to and and talking about all these issues. It will behoove you to to read Rob Goodman's Words on Fire. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining us on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate having you having me on. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You like the program, please tell someone about it.